This podcast contains conversations about trauma and other challenging subjects and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from drawntoastory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change, with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about the lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. It's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently, how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. And that's you included. So if you listened to the last series, you will have heard my interview with Antonia Rolls, who talked about her experiences of being the parent of an adult child with addictions. But difficult conversations are never one-sided. And I want to create balance. I think it's important to to talk about the other side of a subject as well and to give us the full picture. So today I'm talking with Robin Fleming. For two decades, Robin knew that she was in trouble with alcohol. And in 2011, in New York, during a hurricane, she had her last drink. Now, There's an awful lot to unpack between the words knowing she was in trouble and the words last drink. But before we do, I'd like to say hello, Robin, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Kath. I'm extremely happy to be here talking with you. Fantastic. Fantastic. So before we get talking, let me just introduce you to listeners a little more. Robin is the author of Skinful, a memoir of addiction. And she's also a freelance book editor. She's an Australian who has lived in Hong Kong from 1986 to 1993 and was a global nomad from 2010 to 2020. A former grey area drinker, she has run five marathons and 48 half marathons all over the world. And in 2022, she will resume her global travels. Robin is also a keen smartphone street photographer. Right, I'm going to go straight in and say, I recently read your book, Skinful, A Memoir of Addiction. Why did you decide to write what feels like a very personal story? Because you can't get much more public than putting everything that happens into a book. Kath, this book took six and a half years to write. As a woman in her 60s travelling solo around the world, uh, self-employed with no resources backing me up, Mm. having overcome a 40-year drinking habit and with some ability as a veteran athlete and with many stories during, you know, accumulated, I I knew that I was unusual enough Mm. to have a story that might be enticing. But the process of writing was the hardest thing I've ever done, really. Um, Not so much in terms of revealing the dynamics that underpinned my addictions, plural, but the challenges of telling a story in a compelling way and, and really identifying what 
the real story was. Mm. I started with the working title, Where in the World Are My Orange Underpants? <laughs> and the orange underpants make appearances throughout the book. And the, the meaning I attached to them changed during the course of writing the book. Initially, I thought I was writing a funny travel memoir and I just happened to have gotten sober, mm. got sober. The question posed in the working title, Where in the World Are My Orange Underpants?, could only, in the telling of the story, have one answer. They signified home. Where in the world is home? And the only answer to that could be in me. Mm. Mm. I, I had to be my own home. I had to be my own safe place. And then I could travel and take me along and um, feel at home wherever I was. Mm. But in the course of writing it, I realised and I, I, I sought feedback from people in the industry. Um, is this story compelling enough? Well, it's too many stories. Mm, it'd be, sometimes it's hard trying to pin down one, one avenue of the yeah. story because there's yeah. so much you could write about. Mm. I, I'm like a whirlwind and so much was going on. Mm. But I had to find the thread that went through all of the stories to make the stories illustrative of a theme. Mm. There's all these kind of disparate experiences of life, but how you actually thread them all together to create the arc of a story. And actually lots of people can just do like a whimsical kind of travel thing, but not very many people can tell the story that you've told. Um, well, not as many. And I think that's the power of it, that it has this, it's like this, solid steel girder going all the way through <laughs> of this challenge that you had all the way through it's there regardless of where yes, you are well, and what you're doing yes well I was primarily addicted to alcohol mm. but I am also addicted to other things so I had to uh, if I was going to talk about running and it not just be a book about running I had to show how that was one of my addictions how it met one of the needs or part of the need that uh, a substance or behaviour meets for an addict. Mm, mm. And, and in order to do that, I had to really delve deeper. And mm. each stage of writing, each stage of editing, once I had completed the first full draft, which was in, uh, I went to Athens to hibernate in an apartment near the Acropolis to complete the first full draft and I had 130,000 words which is almost twice as much as <laughs> a memoir needed mm. but I also had to understand that I wasn't writing an autobiography mm. I, I, as I say I am no one no one knows my name why would anyone want to read about my life as they might want to read about a celebrity or a sports because they know they want to they're interested in that person's life mm. a memoir what I had to tell was a personal story that might resonate with the reader who come who would come to it with their own questions not who is this person but who am I I think the the normality of who you are as in you're not a celebrity is its attraction because it's like this can happen to anyone it's not 
extreme in the sense that it's not it only happens to these kind of people there's something so incredibly normal about your life that actually I think a lot of people can see a lot in that even though it's it it was extreme does that make sense Yes, uh, you know the the first part of the book. The book is structured around four parts, each each beginning with the turning point. The first part shows how my drinking was in in inverted commas normal. Mm, mm. Everyone I knew drank the way that I drank. This mm. was in the mid nineteen eighties. And I didn't stand out at all. And I never questioned what I was doing, even when I sometimes, you know, sort of went too far and had a Mm. horrible hangover and everything. I never actually looked at why I was drinking and whether I was drinking in a dysfunctional way. Uh, But if everything around you was showing that what you were doing was normal, there's no reason to question it. What you're being mirrored is is the same thing. And so I, I, I wanted to ask you, when did you realize that it, was no longer soothing those problems, but actually had become the problem. At the end of part one, after living in Hong Kong for seven and a half years, Mm. uh, the last few years I realised how I was using white wine specifically Mm. uh, to self-medicate, to um, deal with stress. I had new stresses as a freelancer in Hong Kong that I hadn't had prior to moving to Asia. Mm. Um, I was uh, turning 40. I had no prospect of a, uh, of a long-term partner. Mm. Um, and I was self-medicating on for many reasons. Mm. Um, so the first part of the book shows how what had been normal or what I considered normal and what my friends considered normal drinking morphed into a dependency where other things were shunted aside to accommodate that. And I think, you know, a reader who's drawn to this book uh, is bringing the question, a question they have about themselves they are asking themselves, am I normal? I'm starting to think about my drinking. Is Do I drink like a normal person? Do normal people do what I do, drink mm. the way that I drink, feel mm. the way that I feel? They're trying mm. to find an answer to the question mm. about who, who, who we are. are. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. what is normal anyway? Like what? Yes. Trying to work that out. So when does, if, if you're self-medicating and using these as kind of vices, when does a vice become an addiction? Well, see, we have this uh, recognition now that uh, it's not either or. Mm. Am I an alcoholic or if I'm not as bad as that person who's homeless lying in the gutter, therefore I'm not an alcoholic. If, I can, if I'm still high-functioning in my work, mm. I can still get up in the morning and take a shower and brush my teeth. Mm. But that's that constant negotiation, isn't it, within your head of trying to tell yourself that you're not an addict? Constant. As your, I mean, that must be exhausting. It is exhausting. And, you know, but what you find is so, you know, I know that I had this debate with myself. If I'm not an alcoholic, if I'm not that bad, if I'm not as bad as so and so who, you know, who's really bad, Mm. then I've still got some drinking to do. Yeah. I can still say I'm not that I'm not bad enough yet Mm. but 
this is a spectrum and you slide you can't if you're using if you're drinking emotionally not just socially or because you have a particular interest in wine as a you know a vintage product or you know you write you know there are many reasons why people drink but if you're drinking for emotional reasons to numb pain or to fill an emotional void that spectrum is on a slope and it's quite a slippery slope Mm. if there's a will there's a way that that constant negotiation of trying to bargain with yourself because it because in the book you it was clear that you drank whiskey, but then you talked about white wine being like the soft alcohol. It wasn't as bad kind of thing. Like you're, it, what, I think what, not so much what shocked me, but what just was very apparent was how much you wrestled with yourself to trying to give yourself permission to crave, allow yourself to have something because there was always a reason why you needed it or why it would help. That really stuck out to me as just the most horrendous thing to be living with? The uh, moving the goalposts mm. all the time to, uh, to give myself more drinking space, more. I'll, I'll stop, but not today. I'll stop, you know, I, I've, I have stopped drinking at the beginning of a century, mm. at the beginning of a year, at the beginning of a month, at the beginning, you know, on a Monday. Mm. Is that like a false? No, it's a delay. Sense that you're in, you're really in control. You know, it's not today. Today might be Wednesday. Mm. I can't stop drinking on a Wednesday. At least it's got to be a Monday. You know, this, yeah. this idea of um, yeah, yeah, girding your loins and preparing yourself mentally and say, okay, I'm just going to have these last mm. ones, and then I'll be, then I'll, I'll be strong enough. Um, so. But mm. it is, you're right, Kath, it is so exhausting. And in the meantime, you, in, when I say mm-hmm. you move the goalposts, you start to trade off more and more to accommodate that obsession, that addiction. And for a woman mm. like me, you know, 40-ish at that time, I was trading off the possibility of intimate relationships because I was becoming Mm. ashamed of myself I didn't want anyone to know Mm. who I was who I suspected I was now on the inside you know I I wanted to go to a business meeting at the university and you know drink a couple of glasses of wine like a normal person and then I wouldn't go home and watch television for an hour and then Mm. go to sleep and get up and go to my office which I you know, was doing. I I would I plan to buy another bottle of wine on the way home, which I would drink in secret. And the, the big tipping point was one night when I planned exactly that, and I had uh, worked it out. Well, I knew the whole scenario. I would get a taxi. I would say, "Can you stop at this convenience mm. store?" I'd duck in, buy a bottle of wine, get back in the taxi, go home, and I would breathe a huge sigh of relief that I had four gla- four big glasses of wine ahead of me and I undisturbed. I didn't have to relate to anyone. Mm. And on this particular night, I was offered a lift to my door. 
in order to then go and buy a bottle of wine once I arrived at my door, I would have to wait for my lift to disappear. I'd have to act out a lie. Then to go mm. into my building. Yeah, all the planning then wait, that goes then come it. out again, mm. duck up the street, you know. The, or I could just grip my teeth and say, tonight I'm just going to bed. Well, that's what I, it was a, a, an agonising I say it was an excruciating choice to say tonight I won't have any more, I'll just go to bed. And I ended up in hospital with a massive panic attack. Mm. My body hadn't mm, had you couldn't self-medicate for mm. at least four glasses yeah. of white wine. Mm. It's this vicious cycle of constantly needing to medicate but not liking that you're medicating I mean because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was in the book it it's kind of humorous because where you refer quite frequently to when someone found out that you were drinking or commented on it you then distanced yourself or you removed them from your life whether it was a like a boyfriend or a person at the grocery store or or like the one that really stood out to me was the dental hygienist you you then just have this line that says I'll have to find a new hygienist now like that I could feel myself with like a wry smile because I, I felt like I was suddenly in your, your mind. It was like, bloody hell, the levels of stuff that you go through to keep the drinking happening. Was that about the shame then that you talked about? I mean, you, you've included the humour, but that need to distance yourself, the need of medicating was much greater than yes. the shame. You know, it's I was, like, well, I, I was trading off... Uh, uh honesty i was trading off self-respect i was trading off dignity i was trading off many things but what you have brought up what you've referred to is the narrative arc of the book you know going right back to my 20s i had been Mm. to see an astrologer i think some sort of psychic and that person had said to me after looking at my palm or doing my astrological art or whatever it was you have mm. a tendency Chart to stuff. change yeah. your circumstances mm. instead of yourself and it's stuck in my mind did that mean anything to I you didn't then examine it closely but it's stuck in my mind and what you're referring to mm. is a pattern that i display right through the book is that when my inner core is certained I bolt if I'm faced with the truth about something I'm ashamed about. I I bolt. Um, I you know I'll have to get a new hygienist. I'll have to get a new hairdresser. I'll have to get a new boyfriend. I'll have to get a new convenience store. These people know too much about me that I don't want them to know. Mm. There's a lot of self protection in that. Oh yeah. Even though what you're running to is is hard it's almost like better devil you know there's safety in i just got this image of you clinging on to your clinging on all the time to not be seen to to be who you really are well by the end of part one of the book which part is titled can't find reverse Mm. uh as if i'm you know driving a manual shift car or something i can't find reverse this is headed in one direction and i can't find reverse uh what I was faced with when I ended up in hospital with a panic attack because I couldn't have enough wine, which can I just say, many people have said to me, but 
he didn't drink all that much. You know, many people drink a bottle of wine a night, but it's not the amount. It's the effect it has on you, the reason why you're doing, what the effect you're looking for, the underlying emotion. But anyway, what happened was faced with this situation where if I didn't drink as much as I felt I needed to medicate myself into sleep, if I was going to have a panic attack, what I didn't need was to keep drinking plus add anti-anxiety medications, Mm. which is what I did. I needed to look at my behaviour, but I wasn't ready to. I'll do that later. You're never ready until you, you're rock bottom. Someone telling you something is not going to make it happen. I mean, you, 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 have, to, you have to deal with it when, you, when you're ready to. For me, that was also something I wanted to ask you about was it wasn't just the alcohol, was it? In the book you mentioned, um, or as you were talking, it became clear to me that it was using sex, cigarettes, and you say Xanax as well, and you talk about fried food as a child and sugar. Um, what were you actually medicating? What, what did you get to the point of working out what it was you were actually dealing with? Uh, well, it took 20 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not a quick process. Yes. Yeah. But uh, just just backtracking a little bit, Kath, when I got to that point of where I found I was now also on prescription medication to manage mm. this anxiety, um, I didn't change myself. I changed my country again. I moved back to Australia because I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. It didn't occur to me that my behaviour was contributing to this and maybe I needed to look at my behaviour, at my coping mechanisms, at my stress management, lack of stress management skills. Um, You know, I I was talking to someone the other day, you know, about addiction. Uh, You can picture it easily. If you press down on something that's manifesting, it'll pop up Mm. somewhere else. You can imagine, you know, a piece of plastic you know and things just press down on one it'll pop up somewhere else so underlying all of those behaviors using sex in searching for love and acceptance numbing feelings with ice cream uh, Mm. milkshakes fried food being addicted to changing my circumstances instead of looking at how I was contributing to my situation. Mm. I mean, looking at yourself is so much harder. Like it, it's, you, you think you can just medicate. I mean, it, it's everybody medicates, I think, to some degree. Yeah. And, and doesn't, so many people don't want to look at their shit, look at what their difficult stuff is. And I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that that's what you did for so many years. I, I think we all do, for sure. But where it was impacting on my ability to function um, as a mature 40-year-old woman who, you know, I think the thing, Kath, that I was most ashamed about was the lies, that mm. I, I became a liar, you know, because I felt I couldn't reveal how ashamed I was, how dependent I was. But, um, but just fast-forwarding, when I, in writing this book, it became a book about that battle to surrender and not just um, try to manage what is unmanageable, 
that manifestation, that particular manifest, or, you know, a few manifestations. Yeah. Well, if you unpick one thing, everything unravels, doesn't it? So yeah. it's, it, it's, yeah. you, you, and you know that deep down that like to start to look at all of that, you know, that even if you can't verbalize it, you know, there's something that needs to be unpicked. Yes. And so, you know, it, it gradually over, we're talking decades, became clear what was going on with me, you know, who I was on the inside. And who I was on the inside was a lonely four-and-a-half-year-old little girl. And I discovered this in a writing workshop in New York. Mm. Um, soon after I'd started writing this funny travel memoir called Where in the World My Marriage Underpants. And uh, we were given a prompt word phrase I'm lonely and told you've got 20 minutes to write just start writing so I just start and I was sitting in this room with these other women writing and I'm tapping away and I, I'm lonely I'm lonely and I realized that I'd been lonely since and I'm the eldest of four children mm. that by the time I was four and a half there was a three-year-old an 18-month-old and a newborn baby younger mm. than I was and um, my mother's hands were full with my younger siblings uh, so she didn't have a minute to herself she certainly didn't have a free hand for me to hold my mm. father was a man of his generation time and was uh, believed that corporal punishment beating a child is the way to get them to behave and mm. to um, learn right from wrong. And he brought his own issues to that and his punishment was severe. You know, he would, and it, would, it created fear in his children. He would pursue us through the house with the cane end of the feather duster mm. and viciously whack at us. Now, this is not normal. But in the suburbs, in a small Australian town, this probably went on in every household. You know, that's as bad as it was. But for mm. me to have a father who I was fear fearful of and a mother who loved me but was just emotionally frazzled and unavailable, by four and a half, I thought, I'm on my own. I've got to look after myself, which is a very heavy burden. There, There is a photograph of me as a little junior girl guy. <clears throat> at around, I don't know, the age of six or something. When I looked at that, it made me so sad just mm. to see the weight on those little shoulders. Well, craving love that you you weren't able to get. Uh, like that was something that came up for me, one of my thoughts as I was reading it, that there was a sense that you always went back to the things that you knew weren't good for you. They were things that you craved and people who who made you feel good and who might love you during sex or during a friendship or whatever, when you weren't able to love yourself. And then those circumstances didn't quite work or you, I think there was one case you were told you were too sensitive. What came up for me was how painful that must have been, craving things that are the things that then also hurt you and how confusing and difficult that must yes, have been. Yes. Um, two things there, um, you know, I often sort of got sexually involved with people who I wouldn't consider as a life partner. Mm. Um, 
so that was sort of avoiding, uh, you know, it was, it was finding that it was seeking touch, you know, lo- a loving touch. Mm. Uh, but, you know, not these, these couldn't be real relationships where, you know, I, I have a friend still from those times and we, we used to say, we used to call each other Jim. And there was a song at the time from Star Trek or something, you know, it's life gym, but not as we know it, referring to alien life forms. Mm. We, we call each other gym because other women met suitable partners and got engaged mm. and got married and had children. And, uh, but, you know, that's their life, but it's not our life. But the relationship to Tom that you mentioned had both those. It had that, you know, he, he has his own issues. Um, <clears throat> but in sex, I could get the loving touch from him. But it was also replaying my relationship with my emotionally unavailable father and tr- trying to rerun that relationship and make that one work. But, you know, that's my father. This is yeah. another man entirely. Yeah, that, there's a wound there that you, yeah. you're trying to trying to deal with but also kind of covering up because it's it's painful but it's what you crave and it, it it's the thing that you crave is you know is what's going to actually hurt you as well like it's you're not getting to the bottom of what the issue is and that relationship i contributed to the problems because i didn't open up emotionally mm. you know that, that classic thing i i wanted him to be the way i wanted him to be but he was damaged and I didn't actually explain or make clear what my wants and needs were. Mm. Uh, like my mother, I wanted him to read my mind. You know, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's complicated. He and I were speaking last night. We're still in each other's lives, but mm. uh, I don't have the dummy spits now. You know, these are, these are some of the funny scenes in the book, Skinful, where I have an, yet another dummy spit, like a volcanic explosion or... Day three, I have a dummy spit um, because I can't hold it in. And I'm like my mother in that respect. When I realised I was seriously in trouble with alcohol, I thought I I don't want to have a nervous breakdown here in Hong Kong where I don't have any close family around me. I better go back to Australia. Doing that, I had to start my life from scratch again. I had to find all new clients. I had to find a place to live. I had to start over, which was almost a diversion tactic. Mm. I've got to change everything else first before I can then look at myself and change Yeah, it. then I'll deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but within a couple of months, came to one morning and I was lying on my kitchen floor and I'd fainted. I'd had too much to drink the night before. Uh, another bottle after a friend who'd been for dinner, you know, mm. they left. I opened another bottle. This is what normal people don't do. And I found myself lying on the floor and I called a recovery group on the phone and for 11 months I didn't have a drink. Mm. At the end of that 11 months I thought, you know, that wasn't too hard. Perhaps I've been a little bit, you know, premature and, you know, mm. you know maybe I've still got some drinking in me. It's that negotiations again, isn't it, the- so uh, I got back on that slippery slope and I was on it for another 16 years. Wow, that's a long time. So I had to come up with other ways to try and manage my drinking. And during part two of the book, I took up marathon running. I took up 
trekking in the jungle in New Guinea. I took up walking for two weeks around Mont Blanc in Europe. Mm. These were strategies that created a structure in my life of training. I had to get up in I have to get up in the morning and run 10 kilometers. I have to get up in the morning, drive to the mountains with friends and climb up a very steep hillside because I'm in training. Therefore, I can only have three glasses of wine. Yeah. Feels like using one addiction to help another addiction. Yes. Or to minimize another addiction. Mm. Well, uh, yes, it, that's mm. true. It's all of, I was mm. trying to manage, but some addictions are positive, you know. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to be, if we're going to need to have addictions to get through life, there are positive ones. Yeah, it's a much better one to have in that that sense. I mean, for me, I I really liked the the link running through everything we're talking about the marathons because it felt like the the battle with your addiction was never ending regardless whatever the the substance was that it was a constant and in many ways it felt like the running the marathons was mirroring the personal journey like this long distance effort to the finish line that they seem seemed like a very kind of metaphoric relationship is that how you saw it as well yes it's it's uh you know, you can't get anywhere without putting one foot in front of the other, whether it's a marathon or recovery from a dependency. You know, this whole thing about one day at a time is very powerful. Is that, mm. you know, I don't have to wait for Monday or the beginning of the next year and then never have another drink. Oh my God, that's too hard. I can't even imagine mm. that I'm going to have a drink. Today, Wednesday, for example, I'm just not going to drink today. That is manageable. Sometimes in the early, you know, you're clenching your teeth, you know, you're eating a bit too much ice cream, you know, you, mm-hmm. you go to bed and binge on Netflix, but you get through that day, uh, I, I didn't have a drink. And, you know, mm. it, as each day builds, each they all day, add one up. day is manageable. Mm-hmm. A lifetime is not. One day is manageable. Is that how you pulled yourself out? Like, because I was thinking how... How on earth do you start to pull yourself out from that seduction and the soothing of the substance? Like, what's what's the motivator? Oh, so much went on. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the uh, the next turning point in the book, the middle of the book, was where I realised how fractured I'd become. You know, my I was cracking apart on the inside because mm. the person I still appeared to be to people who knew me in the community that I was living in by this stage, which was when I was 57. So, you know, I I did a lot of things to try and manage that for 15, 16 years. You know, I was credible. I was high functioning. But on the inside, I was breaking up. And I I was so ashamed of that person that snuck upstairs with my two little dogs and another bottle Mm. of wine every night. Mm. I could. And um, I was so ashamed of that person. And then one night I had an experience where someone indicated, someone was just, it was a passing comment from a car. It was so rude. Mm. But I interpret it as meaning my shameful secret was on show, Mm. even to a passing stranger. And that was so horrific that I decided I would go and live, I would travel the world 
I would give away my dogs. Mm. I dismantled the house that I had put together. I would change absolutely everything again. Hopefully, I would make myself so vulnerable as a woman nearly 60, self-employed with no financial resources. Yeah. I didn't have much equity in my house when I sold it. Um, Travelling as a global nomad around the world, I would be so vulnerable. I would be forced to control my behaviour, my drinking behaviour. I wondered about your nomadic life and to what extent it created a container for your addiction. Like, was it partly running away from people that knew you that if you were constantly meeting people that didn't know you, then you could keep that shame hidden, like you could still hide it? Was that part of it? Yes, partly that. Also, I've been doing working holidays because I work freelance work from anywhere I I had been for the past two two years before that I've been doing some long trips to Europe and Asia and running marathons and I was actually good at it Mm. yeah you kept you You know you kept surprising yourself when you you got first in your age group yeah Yeah. you know I could run for a team and earn points for a team in New York I could walk I could walk for two weeks and manage not to drink very much yeah it's wonderful I I put myself forward and I met people, things, you know, and I thought, I'm actually good at this. I enjoy this. This could be my life. Yeah, which is complete contrast to what you'd been feeling inside otherwise. yeah. The other side of that was I'm upstairs again in my room in a small Australian regional city with my dogs opening another bottle of wine. Mm. It's this or that. Yeah, I couldn't see how I could fix the problem staying where I was. Mm. If I went away and did more of that, all that stuff I was good, I found, found I was good at and really enjoyed, mm. perhaps then I could, I'd be so vulnerable, I'd be forced to change, but yeah. maybe I would want to change, which is what happened. I did finally surrender and say, this is not manageable. Mm. This is not the person I want to be. This is not the life I want to live. I can get my power the orange underpants originally were a metaphor for home. They became, I, I, I tell some funny stories, they became for me my power. Mm. They signified that I could take my power back mm. and be the person that I wanted to be. I was powerful, potentially powerful enough to be anyone I yeah, wanted to be. so good. I could go live on the world stage and be visible and be comfortable with being seen whereas I've been uncomfortable with being and uh and I surrendered to the knowledge that this was not something that I could control because I had an addiction yeah to an addictive substance and there was another way to live my life and I I know it's a platitude but it's never too late to make a path to a different future and the future that I could envisage if I kept drinking was horrendous as you've talked about you the book is in four parts of these these turning points and the last phase or the last part in the book is part four are you in part four now or do you see where you're at is part five part five <laughs> <laughs> that's exciting though writing a book, that's a whole new yeah writing a book about turning points has been a turning point in itself yeah 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 I wanted to congratulate you hugely on your sobriety because that's like a massive accomplishment and I'm just complete admiration for anyone who can do such a thing really. Um, But I know it's also not 
a, a fate complete that life is still life shit still happens like the these phases you've got and these turning points how there's an order to that that I quite like so how does that order how does that now affect your life how how is sobriety and and what's life like now we if you're looking at your life in that order I have four quotes that open the book and the last one is from Joseph Campbell mm. Uh, your life is the fruit of your own doing. You know, we all have issues from childhood. On Again, on a spectrum, everything's on a spectrum. We can understand, but uh, we have to look forward. And we're all given a life to live. Mm. And it's up to us how we live it. Yeah. You know, we can be weighed down and burdened and resentful and dysfunctional and basically fuck it up. <laughs> Yeah, it's very easy to do that too. (laughs) Very easy, you know, and you can, you know, self-soothe and and say, yeah, but if you had, you know, my experiences, you'd be like me too. Yeah. You know, I I didn't want to do that. But it's also easy to blame other people and you haven't done that. Like you're, you seem to be quite real around your experiences and why you are how you are, but also why your parents are how they are. Like there's these, these things that happen. And I think what's particularly good and and for me I love about this is that yes you will always be an addict but you've broken that cycle of just having it impact you like you now you you've done enough work that you can see why this happened once you understand you can then you release yourself in a way that you you can't otherwise yes makes massive difference I'm not what I call a spiritual person Mm. but I I say I'm deeply superficial (laughs) in my spirituality, which I had this conversation in Ubud in Bali, very (laughs) woo-woo. Is it better to be deeply superficial in your spirituality or superficially deep? (laughs) Better to be authentic, anything. So deeply superficial does it. (laughs) So, you know, I talk about the universe. Mm. You know, I, I don't talk about God. I had problems using the language of 12-step recovery, mm. as do a lot of people, you know. There are alternatives. Russell Brand is a very good person to read about. He's astonishing, yeah. actually, following. I, I um, never used to like him, and then I really started to properly listen, and he's a, an incredible guy. But, you know, I, I do believe that the universe has been from that time when uh, when I was a young child, I've had capabilities you know, mm. I have success if I work hard. I have a strong work ethic, but I believe that the universe is on my side. And, um, mm. you know, but I have to do, I have to work. I have to front up. Put the effort in. Yeah. You know, You've got to step up, be there yeah. and put the work yeah. in. And Yeah. yeah. But um, so the last part of the book is about creating the life, the best life that I could imagine you know, being responsible mm. for my life. And, you know, it's, it was also there are stories in that last part about things that happened that I had no control over and how I dealt with them sober, whereas, you know, I might have dealt with them differently if I was still thinking that another bottle of white wine was going to help some sort of answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more that happens, the more you can then anchor those points of, of knowing that you've reacted differently and and that becomes your the kind of new norm shall we say well it's like having muscle memory of tennis or something you never stop being presented with opportunities to learn um i'm 
imagining what I want the next phase of my life to be, which is my 70s. I'm going to be 70 mm. this year, you know, and so I think, okay. I want to ask you what your plans are for the future. Yes, well, I would like to actually what I'm calling partner up, you know. I, I believe that I'm ready now to actually have an intimate relationship. And, you know, Tom actually said to me, but you've never had a relationship. He doesn't count my relationship with him mm. in the way that I do, but um, he said you never had one for, you know, more than a couple of years. Well, you know, I've been working on my relationship with myself. Absolutely. That's the primary one. That's, That's all of us need. I've been, you know, having difficulty with. Now yeah, I feel, All of us need that one. Mm. And, you know, and I'm differently with him now. And I, I recently, I, I write a blog for a seniors website. And I recently uh, wrote one called uh, Still Single at 69, Have I Left It Too Late? You know, <laughs> Mm. to find another partner and uh you know but it's it isn't too late no i know lots of people that have got partnered up either for the first time or or remarried at, at that era and you, you just go on and you enjoy what it is at that that in that moment in that yes. time so um but who knows you know all i can do is go into the next phase of my life which is my 70s I'm leaving Australia in two weeks time and I'm going back to uh, visit people around the world who became my global family during my 10 years of being a global nomad I'm promoting my book I'm going with an open mind and an open heart this is all I have control over yeah the next next adventure but on completely different terms well my blog overall title is This One Life. Mm. You know, so mm. this is uh, if I write a second book that's continuing the story of, you know, my journey, this, mm. one, this one life is uh, this is what we have. We have yeah. this one life. I'm, I'm mad about photography, walking with my, my phone, seeing what life presents what the world around me is presenting and I'm developing a photographer's eye which gives me great pleasure because mm. basically I'm looking for things that are aesthetically interesting or uh so it's a it's a, like a pleasure practice and well, it's like a it's almost like a mindfulness a yes a, yeah. a meditation where you're yeah. you're I mean I as an artist I find that with looking at things to draw them that your attention to the detail becomes so strong that you can lose hours doing something because it becomes this transcendent experience. And it's the same with photography, I imagine, of looking at things in detail and and it shifts how your brain and then how your whole body approaches things. Yes, it is all of that. And it's also just looking for beauty, you know, and uh, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a hard person to keep up with because <laughs> I've got a lot of... I think that's a good way to be, yeah. out there doing things. Going back to about my deeply superficial spirituality, I think if you ask for what you want, if you clarify what you want and you ask the universe for it, well, you know, you just may get it. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of research around the power of manifestation. Yeah. Um, and putting putting thoughts out there yeah. so yeah before we go I I wanted to ask you what advice can you give 
people, our listeners, who might have a friend or family member who they think might be might have an addiction problem what is there any advice that you can give to anybody about kind of what to do or what not to do oh you know I I I didn't like people knowing I had a problem Mm. give them my book (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good answer because often people feel completely helpless and they they want to do something and it often it's not actually up to them to help but I think, you know, the kindest thing is to say, um, I love you. I sense that you're struggling with something. Do you want to talk? Um, I'll always be here anytime you want to talk. I had the door open. Mm. Just know it's a safe space whenever. Mm. And also just, you know, it is it is never too late. I didn't need to go to rehab or detox or, you know, I, I, I wasn't that far along on the spectrum of alcoholism, but it was bad enough for me. You don't know where a person sees, where, sees themselves on a spectrum mm. because you can't tell from their behaviour. No, no, and you're only seeing probably 20% of their behaviour yeah. as well. Yes, but, it, but you can see it in the eyes, you know, I think. You can see it in the body language that they're struggling. And, uh, and, and to say, I sense that you're struggling. Is there anything you'd like to, anytime you want to talk, I'm here. There's uh, yeah. never too late. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And I think that's the most perfect way to finish is it's never too late. Like yeah. whatever, yeah. whatever that anything is, it's never too late. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time. I know. Um, it's very early well, it's probably it's a little less early now but it was very early when we started talking when with you in Australia so thank you hugely for for your time and for sharing your story and I cannot recommend uh, this book enough skinful a memoir of addiction uh, by Robin Fleming how can people find your book and follow you if they want to with your social media or websites uh, my website is robinflemingauthor.com I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. The book is available through uh, online ordering from the Book Depository uh, Mm -hmm. and Amazon in the UK. It's available in in Kindle form. It's published by Lantern Publishing in Cheltenham. Yeah. So you you can just Google me, Robin Fleming Skinful, and uh, there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of stuff will come up. And thank you so much, Kath. It's been wonderful talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll put... Uh, all those details in the show notes so that listeners can uh, follow you up as as they wish. Again, thank you so much. And thank you for uh, talking and expanding on the, the details of the book. It's certainly an interesting read. And it's something that it's one of those books that, for me, I felt changed having read it to just get a little insight into what your struggles and what your experiences were and and how you can reinvent yourself and as you say it it, it's never too late so thank you and all the best with your future travels as you head off in two weeks time thank you yeah thanks very much bye then bye-bye you've been listening to drawn to a deeper story thanks for listening